Hello, welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. My name is Amy Tom, I am your host, and today we are going to chat about open source. Hacker Noon Podcast. Software and building an open source platform. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say that this morning I did an online therapy session for not the first time, but for the first like few times and it actually went quite well. So I'm like, ooh, look at this technology. I don't need to see anyone in person anymore. Therapy is becoming more and more accessible to everyone. And so I strongly recommend everyone go out and check out some online therapy. The barrier to trying therapy for the first time I feel is a little lower because you can do it in the comfort of your own home and you don't necessarily have to do like a video. You can do like a chat option. Yeah, I don't know. Just wanted to throw that out there. I thought it was super nice and I think everyone should do therapy. So here we go. But anyways, today I am joined by Ben Bromhead, who is the CTO of Instacluster. We did not practice that ahead of time. I always do this, but he is the CEO of Teleport. Ev, how do you pronounce your last name? It's uh, Consovoy, just silent T. Consovoy. Consovoy, yeah. Oh, Consovoy. Okay, silent T. Exciting. Thank you guys so much for joining. So before we get too into open source, I need to go right to the very beginning. Ev, can you tell me what your very first job ever was? My very first job ever, I believe that was, so I got this summer job to, to be releasing boats. So when racing canoes, when they start, they hear the signal and they start racing, but there is always this like little person in the corner of your screen, if you ever see how that's done. And that person is releasing the boat when the signal goes off. So that was my first job. It's <laughs> well, probably not what you expected. Okay. You, so in, when people are racing boats, you release the boat at the dock. Correct. Okay. How old were you? I believe I was about 11 years old. 11? And yeah. uh, okay. It was a summer so, job. It was uh, mm -hmm. 11 or 12, something like this. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in what used to be called Soviet Union. And now it's uh, Belarus, which is a little independent country in Eastern Europe. Interesting. Is it common for people that are under like a teenage year to start working? I was actually practicing. So I was doing canoeing. So, and if you're doing it, you're basically helping the grown-ups to race. So I'm not really sure, but they paid oh. us. So I, I can say it was basically first money I ever made by doing something with my own hands. Oh, okay. And what do you do? Today, I'm a CEO and co-founder of a company called Teleport. We help engineers and security professionals to securely access cloud resources, anything they have inside of their cloud accounts, from Linux servers to databases, Kubernetes clusters, and web applications. When did you start doing that? So the company got started in 2015, but initially we were focused on a completely different thing. So Teleport was born a few years later. So it, uh, 2018, this is when we launched it and started to be, uh, let's call it famous for okay. making Teleport. Okay. We're going to get into what happened between the ages of 11 and 2018. <laughs> sure. But Ben, what was your very first job ever? Oh, geez, that's a good question. I know, and I had all this time to think about it. No, I th I think the f the first proper job that I had that I think I paid taxes on my paycheck 
mm-hmm. um, was stacking shelves at a supermarket. That Classic. was it. I would, I think it was every Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Uh, Sunday was really good because we got double on the rates, and that certainly made me feel very flush with cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a 15 year old being able to go from eight dollars an hour to 16 dollars an hour on sunday yeah no stacking shells okay and wait why do you say your first official paid job with a tax with taxing did you have unofficial work before that <laughs> uh, uh, a, a few times like a lawnmower um, perhaps I, or so there was, there was a few I think there was a few I did delivering newspapers and that was definitely mm. cash in hand. I tried my hand like building uh, new computers and then selling them in our local classifieds and the, the local paper, but it was a lot of effort. And I think I'd only ever make like 20 or $30 per PC I built. Okay. Uh, and the amount oh, of wow. time and effort and getting my parents to drive me around and buy PC parts was just like the economics just- Not the viable business there. that you were hoping. When I think after I built two or three, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty done with this. I'm pretty bored. So yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so you switched cool. some hardware to software right after that lesson. Yes, straight away. No. Okay, so you were, oh, would you say you were an entrepreneurial? I, I tried. That's the thing. You hear all these stories about people like, I built this thing when I was like six years old and I only just started wa- walking and, and blah, blah, blah. And I tried a lot of that and I, I was still a okay, kid. Okay, wait, that's not I what I said. Clever. I said, were you a child entrepreneur and not were you a successful child entrepreneur? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 th- I think so. I always wanted to try and give something a go where I felt like it would be easier money than clocking in an hourly. I think it, it took me a very long time to find that. Yeah. And what do you do today? Today, so I'm CTO of Instacluster. Instacluster, we're essentially a managed platform for a number of those like really cool data layer technologies you hear different people use. So like Apache Cassandra. Kafka, Redis, Elasticsearch, essentially any of those things that the data layer that you would use to build something that can scale from, you know, zero to millions of users. We help you run that, right? So that your developers, your engineers, your product people can focus on building the cool thing you're working on. And we just deal with all the, the boring database type stuff. So that's okay. us. Okay. And you are a co-founder, right? Correct. Correct. So how yeah. many people did you found with? So four is the is, is the official account. I certainly treat or, or see a number of our early employees as as very much oh, they were there with us from the very early. But yeah, no, four of us started the business. We started out of just my study in a little three bedroom rental house in in Canberra in Australia, and we actually started working on a completely different idea. We we're working on a, a marketplace for high value data sets, and some of the requirements we had were to work with some of these databases. And so we spent a lot of time building capability to just run this stuff. And, and if you think about it, like you're a startup, right? And they talk mm-hmm. about how look, you want to get to market as quickly as possible to start testing your ideas. And here we were having to build orchestration for different databases and to manage different machines. And it was like a huge pain in the butt. And so we, we spent all this time building this and we thought, oh, hey, maybe someone else is interested in this. We put you know, a web UI in front of it, slapped on some credit card billing, wrote a little blog post and kicked it out. And then, you know, three months later, we had four or five people in production running on us. Like, okay. We should probably do this properly. But yeah, that was, that's the genesis, right? It was right. very much working on something else. We had to scratch our own itch and then thought, hang on. I think there's a little bit of a potential in what we had to do uh, mm-hmm. internally. 
And what year was it? Was, uh, 2012, 2013. That we worked on both of them in a very haphazard, lost in the desert kind of way. And I think it was 2013. That was like when it just clicked. Hey, all right. All right. We got to get serious about this. Yeah. Okay. So it's been almost 10 years. I know. I, know. I, I definitely <laughs> wasn't this gray. That's for sure. <laughs> and Ev, how many co-founders do you have? The teleport was started by myself, Sasha Kligentis and Taylor Wakefield. So there are three of us. And okay. this is our second company that we're building together. So we've done this before. It was an easy decision to work together again. Okay. So I have some questions about the co-founder aspect of being a founder, being starting a company, because I don't know why, but in my mind, before I started doing this series, I always pictured co-founder as there's two people. But since I've been talking to a few different entrepreneurs, I have discovered that it is a lot of them are four. A lot of them are four. A lot of them are three. And so what are the roles of your various founders? At so there's actually, a, I think, big difference between the roles of co-founders in the early days mm -hmm. and then the official roles they assume as the company mm. grows. That's a very different thing. Okay. Because in the early days, what matters is you get the product out the door as soon as possible, and the product meets someone's definition of a working thing. So it solves someone's <laughs> problem. So you, so basically, it's an exercise of finding someone who wants what you're building and then actually mm -hmm. building it. And when you think about your co-founding team, that's really the exercise. So in our case, Sasha and myself, so we are two engineers, so we can build things quickly or quicker. But the difference between us is that Sasha is much stronger at kind of fundamental research, mathematics, computer science. So he would work on a really hardcore part of the product, whereas I would be working on everything else that he doesn't have time for. And at the same time, I would be meeting with engineers at other companies to make sure that whatever it is we're building does exactly what they need. And Taylor, the third co-founder, he would literally do everything else. Because even when you're a team of five, look, you already need to have a bank account. You already yeah. need to have, you need to incorporate, you need to have some lawyers that you're paying, you need to manage all of that. You need to get your office, you need to make sure the toilet paper mm -hmm. is there. There's just so much that goes into building company systems and processes and getting the website up and running and starting an extremely primitive marketing team. So Taylor did all of that. So he basically did everything that's not coding. Mm -hmm. And that's how we started. And right okay. now I am CEO of a company, Sasha is a CTO of a company and Taylor is chief operating officer. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Okay. It doesn't and... always happen this way though. Like it's quite common for some founders basically to say, you know what I want, I like building. I don't want to go into management. I don't want to have a bunch of people reporting to me. Uh, all I want to do is just build cool stuff. So that happens yeah. quite frequently. Yeah. What was your experience like? Interestingly, it actually mirrors very closely what Ev mentioned. So mm. two of our founders, myself uh, and Adam Zeglin, we were the technical co-founders in the early days and well, still to this day. We spent a lot of our time writing the code that, that powers all of this. So I think Adam comes from a much more traditional software engineering. He tends to write things a little bit better than I do. I tend to be a little bit more, hey, I can hack this together and, and get it out the door pretty quick. So it was, a good, it was a good balance, I think, between those two about being able to move quickly, but also bringing some rigor to the whole process. And then 
the other two co-founders, Peter Lilly and Doug, were kind of on the other side of things. And we've over the last 10 years, we've all worn very different hats. Like mm-hmm. a year and a half, I was CEO in the, in the early days. Peter Lilly is now our CEO and Doug's our, our COO. Doug previously worked with the marketing team. Peter previously was the COO. So really, I think your job as a founder is, is to get in and get done whatever is required to make the business successful. And you end up wearing a lot of hats that your background might not necessarily lend itself to. And you've kind of got to get it done, build out the capability, essentially until you can hire someone um, that has the experience and actually knows what they're doing. I think one of your prime things to do as a founder is actually to put yourself out of a job. Founders, they'll, they'll usually be good, really good at one thing, maybe two, three, if they're amazing and, and super talented. But I know with, with me, I've only got a few you know things that I'm very good at. But you jump into a role, you make it happen, you do the best you do, but then you're thinking about planning for the future. It's like, all right, we need to bring in the team that can do this right and take this to the next level. So right. I really always see my role, my, my core job is to put myself out of a job. Okay, so let's talk about then going to the next step, which is like growing the company, hiring more employees. How many people work in your organization? To- so last count, 210 full-time mm-hmm. positions. I split around a little bit there. And I think we currently have around 50 open positions that we're hiring for wow. as well. We're in that particular curve of our growth. And it's there's a lot of I guess, work on the business that we're now finding ourselves having to do in terms of planning for that growth and structuring the organization to be able to cope with it and thinking about things like our hiring practices, our onboarding practices, but still being able to focus on making sure our customers get the same love, attention and focus that they've gotten used to working with a startup over the last eight years. You know, it's a very interesting part of our our growth at the moment, the direction we're heading, certainly the problems that we're now working on or that's occupying the forefront of my mind is definitely very different to what it was two years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, for sure. Okay, I have a question about what happens when, and it's to build off of something that you said about how you don't know things and then you hire people who do know those things and they do it. So what happens when, you know, you're at the stage where you don't have the capacity to hire people but you still need to get shit done and you still need to pay certain bills pay certain people get your viable product out the door what are you doing then (laughs) you're not honestly that's the hardest i've ever worked in my life like i'm naturally an incredibly lazy person too my default (laughs) is just to you know, baseline at that. But you, I, you definitely, as a founder, pull out all the stops and you work really hard. I remember in the early <laughs> days, I was writing code, I was interviewing people, and then I was also taking our overnight on-call rotation for support as well. So uh, you do pull those hours. I think if you're onto the right thing and you're showing the right traction, like usually that, that really painful part only lasts about 12 to 24 months. And I think if I was to do this again, I, hopefully that part would be way less, less intense because I've done it before. I'd have a better yeah. understanding. <laughs> I'm sure Ev will speak to, to the joys of having done something before as well. But yeah, no, I, there's definitely a time where you're like, I know I need to hire someone who can do a better job and improve this, but I've got so much stuff I got to do plus all these other things I don't so it's like that short term mm-hmm. long term important urgent critical balance anyway you just you're giving me flashbacks just thinking about it 
the stress levels are climbing. Yeah, yeah. The blood's boiling. Yeah, Here we yeah, go. yeah, for sure. <laughs> but we had four founders as well. So it, it was a yeah. lot easier to share that burden as well. We were able to keep each other in check a little bit. And someone was really burnt out or just in a bit of a struggle that there was more people that they could rely on. So I think definitely having the, the four founders and a great founding engineering team and a great founding employee team certainly helped with that mm-hmm. for sure. And Ev, how many people work with you today? So we are about 90 full-time employees. And similarly, we're hiring for all kinds of roles. Uh, Specifically, I'm assuming that the audience of this podcast is uh, very technical. So if you enjoy systems programming, if you enjoy hacking on security, or if you enjoy uh, talking to other developers, so actually building a DevRel team that has a bunch of positions open, they reach out, come to our Mm. website and find the career section. Because Great. that's ultimately the what's limiting our growth and success is just inability to, not inability, or just difficulty of uh, scaling the team as quick as we need to. Finding the right people. Finding the right people, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's basically, just like Ben said, this is my almost full-time job, just constantly looking for best possible talent to join the company. Yeah. And I imagine that even at 90 employees, one person can move the needle of your culture. Very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it happens in very unexpected ways. I remember we hired, I believe he was uh, our first uh, salesperson and he looked at our kitchen and back then we were all sitting in the same office. He's like, like, you're not eating healthy. And then Basically, single-handedly, he just moved the entire company into healthy eating habits. So then we started to getting in fruit, like fruit and vegetables. And then even, uh, so we, we got a little machine that people can just uh, do like a quick workout on. Again, just one person making that difference. And that could give you like a few other examples. The point is, it's not just happening when you're like 20 or 30 or 50. I believe it. With the right culture in place, it can happen actually for quite some. Mm. So this is, I think, why people... Yeah are attracted sometimes to join a startup. So they imagine it's Mm -hmm. true. It's not always true though, but I'm really happy that it is true for for us. Yeah. And Ben, at 300 employees, do you feel the same way? Do you feel that people can still move the needle in that aspect, even though you're three times as large? Yeah, definitely. No, I'm seeing the impact when certain people join, once they've found their feet, feel comfortable in, in, in the culture, the positive impacts that they can really bring to the table. I think the interesting thing about it is because we're still, we're a little bit spread out globally, right? So we've got a base in Australia and Canberra. We've got a, a base in, in the US in Redwood City, but also spread out a little bit more. We've got folks in Germany. So each kind of like location is still at that between 40 and maybe 80 people, which is still very much within mm-hmm. that. Everyone can still feel part of the tribe and, yeah. and build all those personal, you know, connections and relationships. People bring together their passions and their hobbies into it and start ad hoc little communities around that within the company and just starting to bring a little bit more of themselves, which has been really awesome to see. Also on the business side of things, when you're a small 10, 20 person startup you bring in the talent that you're able to attract but then when you get Mm -hmm. to another size and level you're able to bring in a different level of of talent and seeing the changes that that can have and the experience that they've had and the processes and the systems that they've had it can really you like oh my goodness this is amazing Mm -hmm. we've hit the next level and it's really great for the people that were already in the organization as well doing that work because it allows them to level up as well yeah so 
How do you maintain your startup culture as you grow? I think it's hard for sure. Like we have definitely become more process driven. I think that's just inevitable at the size that we get to. I think also for software infrastructure businesses, you have to because customers have certain expectations that Mm -hmm. you build things properly, you run things properly. So that's where it comes to things like compliance and certifications. So all of a sudden you've got to think about being, hey, we're going to be SOC 2 compliant. We're going to be PCI compliant, ISO 27001 compliant. And so what that does is by doing that, it enforces a very baseline of of maturity that you have to do. And And that flows through to the rest of the company as well. Now, having said that, you still try, you then go, okay, how can we make sure we keep on top of this? And we do things, we've done things in the past, people nominate a process to kill, right? And and we don't actually kill it because usually there's a reason why, but it it means that we're actually constantly looking at the things that we've got in Mm. place, the reasons why we do that. We also try and maintain, we do have some structure and some hierarchy, but we do try and have very much an open door policy when it comes to all the senior leadership and the founders and and that kind of thing as well. And being able to reach out to anyone on Slack or have a chat and be like, hey, I saw this decision happen this way. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that or get a better understanding. And just being able to like have that conversation with anyone at whatever level they are really goes a long way to making feel people feel like, hey, they're able to make a difference, they're able to make an impact, or even just understand, you know, why some decisions get made a certain way. And Ev, how would you describe your startup structure today? Startup structure. So I do want to add something to what Ben was just saying about mm-hmm. maintaining a certain culture to make sure that you continue to be somewhat unique, that people who uh, join your organization and they maybe leave in the future. They will go back mentally and remember those like good days when I was there. And like, this is what that company was good for. We, I think what helps that in the early days, it helps to be aware of your behaviors. Because naturally, like like if you say you are a company of five, there is a reason why it's these five people, not some other five, because you probably like each other. And you probably like each other because you have something in common. And that thing in common to look for, it's certain behaviors. So then you just need to be aware of what is it that we do that we really enjoy doing and then just write them down. And if you write them down, then you will never forget what these things are. And when you bring new people, you're just basically showing them this is what we do here. And then mm-hmm. if they like it, they join. If they don't like it, they probably not. So then it's, it creates this self-enforcing mechanism. The company's centered, or the company culture is built around some key behaviors. Mm-hmm. Ben Horowitz actually wrote a book about it. It's called, I believe, What You Do Is What You Are or Who You Are. It's, it's about the fact that company culture is not something that's kind of dropped on you. The company culture can change. But you don't change culture writing things on walls, saying like, we value honesty or integrity or yeah. uh, we have this triangle of success or whatever. You, yeah. It's about behaving in a certain way. And to give you a couple of examples, like things that we, actually one of our behaviors is we write things down. And it's and we constantly reinforce it and we always make this as a, we almost uh, like a joke with each other. Is it written down somewhere? What you're just saying. Mm-hmm. If you're saying something in the meetings, like is there going to be a document? So every time we go into a meeting, especially now when everyone is remote, there is a requirement that we're asking everyone to have a meeting notes document attached to every meeting invitation. So it's just this behavior that we as a company, we write, we like writing things down. Another two that I realize, like we sometimes say we think slow. 
And thinking slow is something that an outsider, when they join the company, they notice it right away. And what does it mean? It's not, it, it doesn't mean we're stupid. Thinking slow refers to the slow brain, fast brain. Like basically, if you engage in your fast brain, you're acting on your instincts. That's your kind of reptile brain. That's what helps you survive. But then you have a slower brain, the analytical brain. So if you engage that consciously as, as often as possible, you, it helps avoid chasing trends. It helps you making decisions intentionally. And we're constantly reminding everyone internally that we like to think slow. So when you go into a meeting and sometimes the obvious solution is not obvious, it just helps to say, we are thinking slow, we probably need some time about it. And another thing that we constantly reinforce, and we again, being aware of it, is that we like to share everything internally. So every time someone says like, hey, can you send this me by attachment or whatever? No, this is not how things are done here. So my calendar is public. Everyone can see what I'm doing. Uh, they can click on any events that I had on my calendar. And because there is a link to a document, they can go and see decisions that have been made. We have a company drive when we encourage everyone to use for absolutely everything. So I have my personal folder on Google Drive called Ev Constavoy. And every employee can go and see what I'm storing there, which, which helps because I, I keep my notes on some product ideas on, or maybe some notes when I meet really uh, famous and smart and influential person. So it's all available for the entire company to, to access and learn from if needed. So that's basically the thing. Like you have to be conscious about some key behaviors and um, constantly kind of reinforce and remind people what those behaviors are. And that's yeah. what, I'm not sure if that is what you were referring to a startup structure, but that is definitely how we think about culture. And in terms mm -hmm. of structure, if it's the corporate structure, talking mm -hmm. about, I guess it's relatively standard. There are plenty of venture capitalists that regularly blog about what the yeah. appropriate structure looks like for you. Okay. I like that. I like uh, the idea of reinforcing the behavior because I agree with you. Culture is developed. It's a little, I, culture is almost like a little bit delicate. You have to nurture it like a little baby and then it just grows into yeah. whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Reinforce sounds wrong. It's almost like you're mm. forcing people to act a certain way. Mm. I think the word I would like to use is just being aware and communicated. So then even during the interview process, design your interview process to broadcast your internal behaviors. So then people can feel what it's like to be at teleport day to day. Mm -hmm. That's all that you have to do. Just make it extremely visible. And I, I think you've also got to be protective of it as well, because as I've said, your culture is what you do. I think there's also a little bit of a, what you don't do. If there are people that are not behaving according to the culture. If you're not doing anything about that, that is also an explicit and that change that person is bringing to that culture. I think, look, like any organization that gets to a certain, you know, size, you, you've got to be protective of that culture. So I think making sure that it is enforcing the behavior that you display, but it is also, and, and again, enforced is the, is the wrong way, right? Because I mm -hmm. think there is space for a diversity of how people approach your culture and, right. and you've got to allow space for that 100%. But as soon as something is then negatively impacting that 
that culture you've got to be protective of okay let me ask you this then i recently read a study about the way that people define diversity and inclusion in the workplace and it's talking about how millennials as opposed to gen xers or baby boomers view workplace inclusion and diversity as something that's essential to basically the triple bottom line of the business whereas like older generations might view it as something that is like a moral obligation just something that you have to do so like the key differentiator there I feel is like millennials believe that it impacts your profits it's better for your business so how do you go about balancing protecting your culture versus keeping diversity within your team do you know what I'm saying yeah I, I think the way you do that is that you need to make those goals the same you got to align the incentives right mm. so you have to when you're defining your culture as a company, it needs to be things that are universal and common that from the people from any backgrounds can identify with and be part of, right? And on top of that, if you make the respect for different experiences, the respect for different backgrounds as part of that culture as well, like you're aligning those incentives, you know, hopefully we're, we're building and working towards a culture where that's true, where it is inclusive and respective on that. But I think there are a set of universals that it doesn't matter what background you mm. come from or who you are as a person, that everyone can sign up and say, this is a really positive thing. And I think this will help go towards giving me the best possible experience, but also building the best possible company that has the best possible outcome for mm. everyone. So, I'll definitely put my hand up and yeah. say, I'm a millennial, right? Despite, again, the gray beard, right? <laughs> uh, what, what are they calling us? Geriatric millennials, are the, are the older <laughs> ones, which is a terrible term and makes me feel horrendous. But yeah, I, I definitely think that yes, it is a moral obligation for sure, but doing it right does contribute because again, mm -hmm. you think about what's our customer base, right? It's other engineering groups. It's other people in other companies and they are also a diverse group of people. So, you know, I, I, I think it's very self-evident that if, if you are working with a customer that has that kind of level, you've got to get on board, right? And, and I know I'm, I'm talking about this from a very purely capitalistic perspective, and I definitely acknowledge that there is the moral obligation to do the right thing and to be a good person. If we just look at it in dollars and cents, it's look at your customer base too. They're diverse, mm -hmm. right? So, right. yeah. <laughs> so less hanging your culture on the fact that we play water polo and drink beers and only like IPAs and more on the fact that we are all in working towards a specific goal. Yeah, or, or we like to we like to sh we like to share the, the passions in our life because then it gives a space for the people that love water polo and IPAs and broing down like that. Yeah. They, they they can you know share that, but also it gives other people a chance who like things that are not that to share that and, and it gives everyone a space to be like hey that might not be my jam but i'd love to go learn about that from someone else yeah so again i i think as long as you're aligning your culture to being very inclusive yeah it, it should work out you got to work hard at it but again you structure it right from the top and it makes a lot of things easier cool all right great so i want to pivot gears a little bit to ask you some questions about open source. And so, Ben, I right. believe that your company is really based around like the open source movement. And Ev, correct me if I'm wrong, but Teleport is open source platform. Okay, 
Great. So what have you learned from developing your platform as an open source product? So a number of things. Some of them are specific to our industry and others are probably universal. So let's talk about the maybe universal things that you have to think about. And I'm sure it probably applies to Ben's company as well. So we serve other engineers like to constantly learn. That's actually what makes a good engineer is just having intellectual curiosity and actually enjoying the fact that technology is moving relatively quickly, learning new approaches to solving problems. And in order to satisfy that curiosity, you got to have something out there. And any engineer, regardless of even how experienced they are, it could even be like a, a teenager who's like learning about computers, like wants to learn about security. They could use your company and what you're doing as a resource to get better. You got to have some educational materials for them, but most importantly, you got to uh, let download what you've built, put it on their Raspberry Pi and little home lab or into this little drone that they're building and, uh, and get accomplished something very quickly and feel very good about themselves. Mm. So it, it, the easiest way to get this done is obviously through open source. And uh, if from that perspective, of course, it also gives you an advantage against competitors who are not open source. So therefore, that 14-year-old who's building a drone will not be able to use their technology. But eventually, that 14-year-old might become CTO, VP engineering of a company. So that is a very practical reason why, if you are in the engineering tools market like we are, being open source is really good. But then there are also industry-specific things. So we're obviously in a security space. Mm -hmm. So if a company is using Teleport, it means that all of their engineers are accessing all of their clouds, all of their data, uh, the running deployments via Teleport. So it's basically the way to get to the most valuable thing that most companies have, which is data. And for that, so when, when security professional evaluates Teleport, it's extremely valuable that the code is in the open. It provides them with a guarantee that there are no back doors in that product. Because there are thousands of people, like probably smarter than you or me or anyone. There is always someone smarter than you. Like and these people are looking at the code and they are evaluating how crypto is implemented. What are the defaults? What choices are made for compilation flags, for example? Yeah. Wait, what about the school of thought that is like you, it, by being open source, you allow more security risks because people are have access to everything they have access to code the right code. so which yeah, means like... they can download and read the code mm -hmm. but if you want to submit your own code into teleport code base it has to go through a fairly rigorous code review process and i would argue that open source companies actually employ much stricter standards for getting code mm -hmm. into their uh, code base for the exact same reason because you don't really know who that contributor is simply uh, the fact that you open source also, I believe, contributing to Teleport myself in the early days, mm -hmm. just having it in the back of your head that when I type git push, like 8 billion people, or whatever, will be able to see what I just did. It creates like a certain mental state that allows you to be a better programmer. It was mm -hmm. definitely true for me. Okay. And at the same time, if I know I've done some really good job, it gives you much greater satisfaction because you're taking this awesomeness that was just downloaded from your brain down your hands into the keyboard, into your computer, and then all of this awesomeness is going to go out there in the world. So I do believe that all like this dynamic of developing in the open leads to just generally higher quality software. Mm -hmm. 
And like, I, I guess the most obvious case that was just a kind of demonstration of this fact was, was uh, Linux versus Windows. Throughout my entire career, you pick almost any part of the operating system and it would usually be done much, much, much better on Linux simply because of this kind of ongoing dynamics. So that's, that's our approach to open source. This is why we're developing in the open. Again, to reiterate, it helps us to become a part of educational process. It helps us put our technology in front of as many engineers as possible because we know that eventually dollars will follow. And the second component is like in the security space, it gives us a serious advantage against any proprietary competitor that might claim to have similar capabilities that we do. Okay, so I'm not a developer or a founder, but why would I start my company then and not make it open source? There's so many that do that. Why would, if I'm following your explanation, why would I not then do it? So in this case, if I just take what I previously said and I invert everything 180. So what mm -hmm. if you are in the market that it's not for engineers? So it really doesn't matter if you want to get into some kid's uh, yeah. home project. And at the same time, you, the, for example, the extreme security considerations are not really like the, in front of you, but there are advantages to developing a closed source because it's faster. Because mm. if you want to build a prototype okay. and get it out there, you can take certain shortcuts, engineering shortcuts. You could do, I don't know, a terrible sorting algorithm, or you could pick a storage schema that's just, for example, Hacker News, like a really popular website amongst engineers, was famously implemented using a flat file for storage. So if you, but if you're developing an open source and people look at your code, they may say, oh, look at all these different shortcuts. That company is just like not good. They may not realize that you're doing all of these compromises on purpose just to move at maximum possible velocity. And you don't really want to deal with that. So for that reason, when speed of development is just mm. absolutely number one reason, I think I would say it makes a fairly strong case for developing in a traditional closed source model. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, by the way, there's like a practical thing. You might be building your product on top of someone else's technology. You might be using a certain library or some other component, and that component might have a license that prevents it, prevents you from open sourcing it, which is, happens actually quite frequently. So sometimes yeah. you don't even have a choice. Yeah. Okay. Ben, I see you over here nodding your head. Why have you chosen to essentially hang your career on open source? One, pretty much a lot of the reasons that I've, I've, I've mentioned, like absolutely spot on. On the security side, in the database land as well, in the database world as well, we've got to worry about things like correctness bugs, especially in distributed systems. So having more eyes, more users, all that kind of thing, looking at the code, that's going to help reduce the number of those that, that we encounter. Plus we get people from a whole different bunch of backgrounds working on it. We get academics, we get people at massive companies doing this stuff at massive scale. We get small users, we get people trying to commercialize it. So again, it, there is a whole wide range of inputs going into this and it, it is a diversity of use cases that then go back into it rather than a mm -hmm. single company looking at their product roadmap, looking at their marketing roadmap and figuring out what needs to get in. So we end up with a much better product. Yeah. <clears throat> also the access thing, as I've mentioned, that experience of, hey, this 14-year-old kid reaching for the tool off the shelf that's accessible to them, which open source is probably the most accessible way to get software and going to throw it in a project that they're interested in, right? That behavior 
actually is the same whether you're 14, whether you're 20, whether you're 35 working at a massive company. The biggest thing that we actually see is with an open source product, an engineer, if they're trying to solve a problem and they can reach for a bit of code or a project that allows them to solve that problem and they don't need to worry about procurement, they don't need to worry about free trials or credit card signups or any of that, they can just go download, they can add the library to their project. They can download it. They can get a Docker file. However they consume that, we've just unblocked them. They've had the thought, they've got the problem. They're like, great, I can reach this tool and go grab it. And so all of a sudden they're working with this. They're spreading it to the team. They've solved the problem. It's already starting to get embedded. It's already being part of the code base. And so when they finally go, hey, we've got to do this properly in production. We've either got to get support for it or someone else needs to run it or whatever. They're like, the code works with it. They've already built it into their whole pipe, which is a hugely powerful head start that you have over potentially mm. any other proprietary solution. There's ways that proprietary companies try and bypass that. But I think, again, because the license means that engineer can be like, you know what? It really doesn't matter what procurement or sales or budget says. It's pretty low risk for me to adopt. So that's why I love that particular effect that it has is that it really enables developer velocity and i think that's right. what at the end of the day we're all trying to do is we're trying to unblock developers we're trying to allow them to get back to their core job of solving whatever business problem that they've got to solve right not, mm -hmm. not what's it about with databases or security infrastructure or, or anything like that yeah um, right. And it's interesting, I starting a company around open source, like we didn't start this being like, hey, we're open source true believers. It mm -hmm. was actually, we were purely led here by our customers where we saw this movement. They wanted to adopt open source first. We learned a lot of the benefits from the way that we saw their procurement work with it. We saw a lot of the benefits from how powerful it was to un unlock how their developers worked. And so we really, we skated to where the puck was going to be a little bit there, like saw that that movement and went to it. Like I'll put my hand yeah. up and say, I'm not an open source absolutist. As I've been describing you as an open source. As I've said, there's a space for proprietary software, right? Like yeah. video games, like you're not going to mm -hmm. make any money if you just release those open source. Okay, so how do open source companies make money then? So I, I think, it again, it comes down to the fact that people who use, especially infrastructure projects, especially anything that they use to get their other jobs done, um, they don't want to spend time on these things. So they either don't want to be fixing bugs. If you're running open source by yourself and mm. you hit a bug, you've got to fix it yourself. So they want someone to go fix the bugs for them. They want to be able to call on someone if something goes wrong. So there's the support element. Mm -hmm. Or in this wonderful world of everything runs in the cloud now, they just want someone else to run it. Okay. And there's this huge, powerful combination of having an open source bit of software that could, someone can adopt as a service because they can get someone else to run it for them. They've got all the benefits of that as a service. But look, if they don't like you, they don't look like the price and they don't like it what, the way it works, they can always take it in-house. They can always move it to someone else. So there's a lot lower switching costs. From mm -hmm. our perspective, yeah, that's potentially a little bit more risky, but it also means that we are now better aligned with the incentives that our customer have. So we can't lock you in with a proprietary license. The only way we can lock you in is by doing a good job and making right. sure you see the value around that. So that's how we tackle that particular problem. And we're just, we really, we make our money from the fact that people don't want to do this stuff themselves. Mm -hmm. Ev, do you agree on the monetization of open source? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Ben uh, just recently mentioned probably the most common way how open source companies monetize, because when an engineer 
because of this kind of either intellectual curiosity or a certain urgency to get a project done quickly when they grab your solution and they're learning it and they're enjoying it. So there's a little bit of kind of honeymoon going on. So then eventually it's up and running and they need to move on. They need to leave this behind, but you can't just leave anything behind. Someone needs to be watching it. So this is actually a perfect Ooh, okay. time for the transition to bring professionals, to bring expertise, experts that will run this for you. So that's one way to monetize. But there is another one that sometimes people mention, well, do you guys have any enterprise features? Something that's not in open source, but is only available if you pay uh, money. And people have conflicting views on enterprise features. It means like, sometimes they would say that if you have enterprise features, it means you're taking it from a community and you're only making it available to people like with money. And yes, sometimes, unfortunately, that is what happens. But if you are smart about it, and I hope we are, you can identify capabilities that engineers actually don't care about. But the larger companies, like, be, like for example, beyond certain size, they absolutely mm. cannot live without them. I'll give you one example. Like Teleport has an enterprise capability called FIPS mode. It's basically, it's when we take Teleport and we compile it in a way that certain crypto, the code is removed from the binary. That is definitely not something that a knowledgeable engineer cares that much about because they can just configure teleport to use the proper crypto. But enterprises who need to eliminate possibility of human error, they need to have a something that is cannot be misconfigured. Like mm. basically want product completely locked down to specific way to uh, do crypto. So that's a perfect enterprise feature where you're not going right. to piss off the community by not offering it to them but plenty of enterprises find it extremely uh, valuable. So I do believe there is also a place for, for enterprise-only right. capability that could yeah. be sold. That's like a an... selling point within the open Correct, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. enterprise integrations is another big one. So a lot of our customers, mm. they also use Splunk, mm. right? Splunk is not right. something that a lot of people have running in their homes, in the home labs yeah. or in the, on their drones. <laughs> but so they naturally value Splunk integration. So. Teleport right. will export all of the kind of security and access events into Splunk. So that's another mm -hmm. thing that is a really good candidate to for an enterprise integration that you can charge money right. for. Okay, understood. Cool. Thank you very much for joining the podcast, guys. I really appreciated it. And I want to let the listeners know, too, that these guys are both nominated for Startup of the Year. Instacluster is nominated for Startup of the Year in Redwood, I believe. And Teleport is nominated for Startup of the Year in... Oakland, California. Oakland. Yeah. So I will put that in the description of this episode and put the, sh the link in there so you can vote for your favorite Startup of the Year. And Ev, where can we find you and what you're working on online? So you could just go to goteleport.com or you could just Google Teleport Access or find us on GitHub. Excellent. And Ben, where can we find you and what you're working on online? Yeah, instacluster.com. There is no E at, at the end of that bad boy right there. Oh. But uh, instacluster.com. I know the domains were Some limited people, when we got yeah, started. Okay. Yeah, instacluster.com. Also check out our GitHub. If personally you think I sounded moderately interesting, definitely follow me on, on, on Twitter. I don't post that much anyway, so it's not a hard follow. Yeah. What's the handle? Oh, shoot. Yeah, thank you. Ben <laughs> Bromhead. Easy. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Thank you very much. If you like this episode of the Hacker Noon podcast, you can get that wherever you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to it. And as always, stay weird. And I'll see you on the internet. 
Bye-bye. Afternoon podcast.